Have you ever come across a story that is so strange, so completely out there, that it pushes the limits of what you believe to be true? When something unlikely and completely unexplained happens, it hooks us with its mystery. It tantalizes us with the knowledge that the truth is, as they say on the X-Files, out there. But that the truth may be unknowable. When something completely unexplained happens times five, though, We find ourselves facing new levels of impotence when all we can do is shake our heads and wonder what happened and why. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan, who will admit that when I started writing this podcast nearly three years ago, I thought, how can there be enough strange and unexplained content to fill so many episodes? Oh, how young and naive I was back then. I could probably do this podcast for the rest of my life and still not cover every weird story out there, not to mention the new ones happening every day. It makes for a lot of content, but also a lot of sad and baffled loved ones left with nothing but questions. Today's story is one of the weirdest ones I've ever heard, the truly confounding story of the Yuba County Five. Hi, strangers. The Strange and Unexplained Patreon is now live. For just $5 a month, you will have access to three bonus episodes a month. These episodes will be about 15 to 20 minutes long, giving you more of the kind of strange and unexplained content you love. For $7 a month, you'll get all of that, plus ad-free versions of the regular episodes. To join the Patreon, head to patreon.com slash strange and unexplained. See you there! Marysville, California, in Yuba County, is a small town about 40 miles north of Sacramento. In 1978, all of Yuba County had a population of fewer than 50,000. I couldn't find statistics for Marysville in particular, but today it has fewer than 13,000 people. So back in 78, it's safe to say it was a very small town where everyone pretty much knew each other and each other's business. Jack Madruga, Ted Wire, Bill Sterling, Jack Hewitt, and Gary Mathias were five residents of Marysville who were often seen hanging out together, either watching or playing sports. The men, in addition to sharing a love of basketball, also all had diminished mental capabilities of varying degrees of severity. Jack Hewitt, the youngest of the group at 24 years old, was, according to his father, the most severely handicapped of the five men. A piece from the Sacramento Bee in 2019 described Hewitt this way, quote, He couldn't read, write, or dial a telephone and depended highly on his mother and wire, whom he had known for about eight years. Shy, with a speech impediment, he didn't particularly like being away from home for extended periods of time. Certainly not overnight, his father said. Then Yuba County Lieutenant Lance Ayers, the case's lead investigator who died in 2010, was likely referring to Hewitt when he said that some members of the group had IQs as low as the 40s. Hewitt was considered by most to be Ted Wire's shadow, who, according to a 1978 Washington Post article, quote, looked after Hewitt in a protective sort of way and would dial the phone for him when Hewitt had to make a call. Wire was 32 and, according to the Sacramento Bee, quote, loved making new friends but lacked basic common sense, his brother Dallas said in an interview with the Bee. 
He once spent $100 on pencils for no particular reason, his parents told investigators, and would question instructions as simple as stopping at a stop sign. End quote. I mean, look, it's called retail therapy for a reason. If pencils were the thing that brought him joy, great. But apparently when he was younger, the family's house was on fire and his older brother found Ted lying in bed just watching the flames grow because, he explained later, he had work the next day and needed his rest. Jack Madruga, 30, was an army vet. He'd been laid off from his job as a dishwasher at a dried fruit company when the company upgraded its equipment and Madruga had trouble learning how to use it. His family described him as, quote, slow in his thought processes, end quote. 29-year-old Bill Sterling, described by the Washington Post as, quote, Madruga's special friend, end quote, was deeply religious and hated the outdoors. As a teenager, he'd gone on a fishing trip with his parents to a cabin they owned and hated it so much he announced he would never be going back. And he never did. Sterling worked as a dishwasher on a local army base in the early 70s before his mother urged him to quit when she found out servicemen were getting him drunk and stealing money from him. The newest member of the group was Gary Mathias. Mathias, 25, was the only one of the group who did not have an intellectual disability, but was instead diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mathias had been discharged from the army for a drug problem five years earlier. According to the Sacramento Bee, the men who, quote, were almost inseparable, end quote, were nice kids with no law enforcement issues. Although, as it turns out, Gary Mathias had had plenty of issues with law enforcement, but somehow that wasn't on anyone's radar in February of 1978. On February 24th, the five men piled into Jack Madruga's 1969 Mercury Montego and drove about 50 miles north to the city of Chico to watch their favorite basketball team, UC Davis, play Chico State. As Ted Wire left his house earlier that evening, his grandmother urged him to wear a coat. It was only about 54 degrees that evening, mild for the winter, but still, you never know, you know? But Wire assured his grandmother he wouldn't need one and left wearing only lightweight clothing. After the game, which UC Davis won, by the way, the men stopped at a convenience store about three blocks away from Chico State for snacks. They bought candy bars, fruit hand pies, a Pepsi, and inexplicably, in my opinion anyway, a quart and a half of milk. Unless one of the men suddenly remembered he was supposed to pick up milk on his way home. The thought of someone being like, ooh, I need a snack. I'll take a candy bar and a quart and a half of milk. Just vomit. Anyway, the men loaded up with goodies and a quart and a half of milk, got back in Madruga's car and drove off. The store clerk, who'd been annoyed at the men for coming in as he was trying to close up, would be the last person to see the men alive. Shortly after 5 a.m. the next morning, February 25th, Juanita Sterling's phone rang. It was Imogene Wire, Ted's mother. Ted hadn't come home. Juanita told Imogene she'd been awake since 2 a.m. when she realized her son, Bill, hadn't come home. She'd already called Jack Madruga's mother, so Imogene then called Jack Hewitt's mother, and Ted's sister-in-law went down the street to talk to Gary Mathias's parents. None of the five men had returned home from the basketball game. The hours ticked by, and at 8 p.m. that evening, Jack's mother called the police. 
It would have been unusual enough that the men would have failed to come home or call to let their families know where they were, but it was particularly alarming because all five men were set to play in a Special Olympics basketball game on the morning after their disappearance. Ted's mother, Imogene, said later in an interview with the LA Times, Ted wouldn't have missed that game for anything. He'd gone to the Special Olympics playoffs in Los Angeles last year and had gotten Sally Struthers' autograph. He even had his basketball clothes all laid out in his room. The men had been talking about and anticipating the game for weeks. Gary Mathias had practically driven his mother crazy in the days leading up to the big game, reminding her to make sure he didn't oversleep on the day of the game. Several of the men had laid out their uniforms for the next day's game before leaving for Chico on the 24th. On February 27th, a park ranger who saw the bulletin about the missing men called in to say he'd seen the turquoise and white Mercury Montego on February 25th on a gravel recreational road in Butte County's Rogers Cow Camp area 70 miles away, about two and a half hours from Chico, and nowhere near on the path one would typically take to get between Chico and Marysville. The car was stopped at the snow line, and although it looked as though the tires had spun, the car wasn't stuck and could have easily been pushed free from the mud and snow by the men. Initially, the ranger hadn't thought anything was off about the car being parked there because residents often drove to the area on weekends for skiing. When police got to the car, they found it empty. The keys were gone. But when police hotwired the car, it started right up. That, coupled with a quarter tank of gas, it was clear that car trouble could be ruled out. But then, why had the men abandoned the car? And where did they go? Perhaps even stranger than the car starting fine was the fact that its underside was undamaged. As the piece in the Washington Post put it, quote, This heavy American car with a low-hanging muffler and presumably with five full-grown men inside had wound up a stretch of torturously bumpy mountain road, apparently in total darkness, without a gouge or dent or thick mud stain to show for it. The driver had either used astonishing care and precision, the investigators figured, or else he knew the road well enough to anticipate every rut, end quote. But Madruga, whose car it was, wouldn't have known that road, and his mother Melba insisted he wouldn't have driven the car on a road that would have damaged it. Also, Madruga was the one, don't forget, that hated the outdoors. His mother Melba told the LA Times, There is no way he would have gone voluntarily into the mountains at night. And he never allowed anyone else to drive his car. So even if one of the other men knew the road, the chances that they would have been driving Madruga's car were slim. Not to mention only one other man had a license, Gary Mathias. All the men's families agreed that none of them would have been familiar with that area or that road. Mrs. Madruga also said that Jack would have never walked away from his car like that. When police found it, the doors were unlocked and one window had been left rolled down. Something, Melba Madruga said, Jack would have never allowed normally. She told the Times, I'm positive he never went up there on his own. He was either tricked or threatened. If they somehow managed to be there of their own volition, but by mistake, their families were sure they would have either stayed in the car to stay warm, or they would have gone back down the hill to the lodge they'd passed on the way up the mountain. But as it was, the men were nowhere to be found. Jack Beecham, the undersheriff of Yuba County at the time, told the Times, This case is bizarre as hell. 
but as time goes on, foul play becomes a greater probability. It's hard to lose five people, that's for sure. I would hope so, Jack. The daunting task of finding those five people was just starting. No sooner had the search begun, literally the same day the car was found abandoned, when a blizzard rolled in, dumping nine inches of snow on the area. The search team itself almost lost two people of its own two days into the search. They even had trouble getting their snow cats through the high drifts. And even with dogs, horses, and helicopters assisting in the weeks-long search, no trace of the men was found. Fortunately, as winter turned to spring, the snow melted, which made the roads more traversable. Unfortunately, that means that by early spring, they still hadn't found the men. In March, Madruga's parents reached out to psychic Gloria Elizabeth Daniel from a metaphysical non-denominational church called the Tsadi. Ms. Daniel wouldn't speak to reporters, which I respect. I am far more likely to believe a psychic, insofar as I am ever to believe a psychic, if they're not interested in promoting themselves in the media. Confusingly, though, Gloria's husband told the press that they weren't working with the families, but with the sheriff's office. Sheriff Lance Ayers was skeptical, but willing to try anything he could to find the men. And apparently there was one more psychic weighing in. According to the Washington Post, quote, One told him the boys had been kidnapped to Arizona and Nevada. Another said the boys had been murdered in Oroville in a two-story red house, brick or stained wood, with a gravel driveway and the number 4723 or 4753, end quote. Ayers said he spent two days driving all over Oroville looking for the two-story red house with either of those addresses. It didn't exist. And then, later in March, Joseph Shans, a man whose car got stuck on the same road on the same night as the men, came forward to say he'd seen Madruga's car that night as well as a pickup truck, though he wasn't entirely sure about the pickup truck. And then another witness came forward saying that at about 2 p.m. on Saturday, February 25th, she saw a red 1950s model pickup truck outside a store in Brownsville, about 40 miles northeast of Marysville, and an hour's drive on the back roads from where the missing men's car was found. The woman asked not to be identified and only came forward after posters with a reward for information had been posted. But police called her a credible witness and said they were taking her information seriously. She said there were two men in the pickup truck, one in the store, and two standing by a telephone booth. And the owner of the store said he'd seen the men in front on both the 25th and 26th. He told the Times, I'm pretty sure I saw Wire and Hewitt buying burritos, chocolate milk, and soft drinks. I can't be positive, but I remembered after the Brownsville woman asked me whether I had seen the poster. The first witness then identified Hewitt from a picture and said he'd been in the telephone booth. But Hewitt's brother told the Times that Hewitt hated using the phone and refused to do it. If he had to call home, he would have had Wire do it for him. Of course, he could have been in the telephone booth and not using the phone, though one might imagine if they had access to a phone, they might call someone for help. 
And unless there was a sixth member of this party at the store, this would have to mean that the men left the car in the mountains, got into some random pickup truck, and drove it away for some reason. No one had reported a stolen pickup truck, and a search of Brownsville turned up nothing. Plus, one would think a lot of people would have noticed a red pickup truck with at least three big guys riding in the back. Nonetheless, Wire's mother, Imogene, thought it was possible the men were being held prisoner in Forbes Town, six miles from Brownsville, possibly at one of the several communes reportedly in the area. Forbes Town was apparently a place where young people went to drop out of society. Also, Gary Mathias had a friend who lived in the area, but Mathias' stepdad said he didn't think the five men were ever there together. Meanwhile, the case was taking a pretty heavy psychological toll on Sheriff Ayers. Not only had he gone to high school with Wire, but the haunting reality of five human beings seemingly vanishing seemed to be more than he could take. According to the Washington Post, quote, By late spring, Ayers was dreaming about the boys at night. Once, he woke up in the darkness, arms outstretched. He had almost embraced all five. You do a lot of handshaking, Ayers said and a lot of drinking, end quote. Ayers followed up on every lead and tip that came in, but nothing was getting the investigation any closer to a resolution. But then, once the snow was gone, Ayers and his team made an awful discovery. About three months after the men disappeared, a small group of motorcyclists came upon an old Forest Service work site about 20 miles from where Madruga's car had been found. On the site was a 60-foot trailer, curiously emitting an awful smell. They called the police. The recovery team spent half a day clearing trees in order to reach the site by vehicle. Once they did get to the site, they knew right away something was not right. Under Sheriff Beachman said, When you got up in that area, you could smell the death. It was horrible, that stench. Inside the trailer, tucked in a bed under eight sheets, was Ted Wire, who had apparently frozen to death. His pants were rolled up above the knees, and by the look of his legs, the team could tell he'd had blood poisoning, gangrene, and had lost five toes to frostbite. He'd lost 80 to 100 pounds. The growth of his facial hair suggested he'd survived up to 13 weeks, which, tragically, would have been just two weeks before the rescue team got there. On a table nearby sat Ted's jewelry, his wallet with cash still in it, as well as a Waltham watch that none of the families recognized as belonging to their sons. In order for Ted to have gotten to that trailer, he would have had to walk 19.4 miles in the dark through the woods and four to six feet snowdrifts, wearing just a velour shirt and lightweight pants. Why in the world would he have done that? If he was going to walk anywhere, why not back down the road? I suppose it could have been that he lacked common sense, like his family had said, but surely one of the men would have been like, uh, why don't we just walk down the road? Also in the trailer where Ted was found, as the Washington Post reported it, quote, more than a dozen sea ration cans from an outside storage shed had been opened and emptied. One had been opened with an Army P-38 can opener, which only Madruga and Matthias, who had served in the Army, probably knew how to use. But no one had opened a locker in the same shed containing enough dehydrated Mexican dinners and fruit cocktails and assorted other meals 
to keep all five alive for a year, end quote. That locker, by the way, was unlocked. There were also matches, paperback novels, and plenty of wood furniture, but absolutely no sign that anyone had tried to start a fire to keep warm. Even more confusing, there was a propane tank in a nearby shed. As Sheriff Ayers told the Washington Post, All they had to do was turn that gas on, and they'd have had gas to the trailer and heat. There were also warm clothes that were untouched. So even though they'd found Ted's body, the mystery had only gotten deeper. Why were so many life-saving supplies left unused? And where were the other four men? Three days later, at the roughly halfway point between the car and the trailer, the partial remains of Jack Madruga and Bill Sterling were found on either side of a mountain road that led to the trailer. Now, one would think, if there were any kind of road or trail leading away from the car, the search teams would have followed it to begin with. If they had, they might have found the men in time. I suppose it's possible they couldn't see the road because of the snow, but surely it would have been on maps of the area. If the men somehow found the road in the middle of the night, why didn't the search teams? At any rate, the Yuba County coroner identified the cause of Madruga's death as hypothermia. His car keys were still in his pants pocket. Tragically, Bill's remains had been picked so clean by animals they weren't able to determine a cause of death. Two days later, despite pleas by investigators not to join them on the search, Jack Hewitt's father found his son's jacket not far from the trailer. And a warning, strangers, this part is awful. When he picked up the jacket, his son's spine fell out. They were only able to positively ID Jack Jr. from his teeth, which they found in his skull somewhere 50 feet to 100 yards away, depending on which source you read. As far as anyone could guess, the men might have seen the tracks of a snow vehicle and followed them, though why they would have done that, or gotten out of the car, or even been up that mountain, no one knows. The reason the snow vehicle tracks were there was because someone in the Forest Service had gone up to the trailer the day before the men disappeared to clear snow off the roof so it wouldn't collapse. Again, why the men would choose to follow tire tracks into the woods and not just walk down the road they'd driven up is a mystery. Also, why the Forest Service or rangers or anyone didn't suggest to searchers that the men might have gone down this road, no one knows. At the very least, you'd think at least one searcher on an ATV could have gone down that road. But for whatever reason, it seems the five men decided to follow those tracks that night in the freezing cold, not at all properly dressed for the weather. Plus, as Sheriff Ayers told the LA Times, when people are lost, they don't tend to walk in a straight line, especially not for nearly 20 miles. Although, in this case, it's possible that if they actually were following the tire tracks, they were convinced that there was a shelter at the end of the tracks, and that they likely had what Ayers called around-the-corner syndrome, which I imagine is similar to when you're on an easy day hike with your 10-year-old and they've been complaining for the last hour that their legs are tired, so you keep saying, it's just around the corner here. Except in this case, they were telling themselves that. 
Investigators thought it likely that either Madruga or Sterling fell to the side of the road at some point during the initial walk away from the car, and because they were such close buddies, the other one opted to stay with his friend. They were likely exhausted and may have fallen asleep and frozen to death, which may explain why they were found so close together. There's also evidence that Wire wasn't the only one who'd reached the trailer. Because of the way he was tucked into bed, someone had to have been there with him. His hands were resting on his chest, but the sheets were tucked neatly around his body and head. Someone had to have been there with him. None of these discoveries helped answer the question of what exactly happened. Jack Madruga's mother, Melba, told the LA Times, Things aren't right. They want to say they got stuck, walked out like a bunch of idiots, and froze to death. Why would they leave the car to go die? There's no sense to that theory. But we can't figure anything that works out right. There's no rhyme or reason to any of it. It's possible Melba had a conversation with law enforcement that wasn't made public, or that law enforcement was saying one thing to the press and something else to the families, but as far as I can tell, law enforcement wasn't suggesting the men willingly walked away. It seems to me that pretty much everyone suspected some kind of foul play pretty much right away. As far as anyone knew, there was no reason for the men to have been up that mountain road that night. It's also totally understandable that the mother of a man who was found dead under these circumstances would be incredibly frustrated and angry. Now, strangers, there's one thing I haven't exactly addressed yet. Four bodies had been found, but five men had gone missing. Jack Madruga, Ted Wire, Bill Sterling, and Jack Hewitt were dead. But where was Gary Mathias? Investigators thought it possible that he stayed in the trailer until Ted had died and then switched his own tennis shoes for Ted's leather shoes, which would make sense if he thought he was going to have to walk a long way. But also, if his feet were swollen from frostbite, he would have wanted shoes that were bigger than his size. About a quarter of a mile northeast of the trailer, searchers found three wool forest service blankets and a flashlight, but no sign of Matthias. On June 19th, after searching for Matthias for another two weeks, the search was called off. Because Matthias had a diagnosed personality disorder, the local psychiatric hospitals were notified to be on the lookout for him. He had apparently left for the basketball game without his wallet, so he had no ID, and without his meds, he was going to be in bad shape. He took six pills a day to keep his schizophrenia under control. His stepfather said that after a couple weeks of no medication, Gary, quote, would be in very poor condition talking to himself and the like, end quote. More time went by, and one year after the five men had vanished, the families were left with nothing but questions. None of it added up. But they all agreed that the men must have seen something that scared them enough to make them think they had to hide in the woods. In interviews with the Washington Post, Melba Madruga said, There was some force that made him go up there. They wouldn't have fled off into the woods like a bunch of quail. We know good and well that somebody made them do it. Ted Wire's father said, they seen something at that game, at the parking lot. They might have seen it and didn't even realize they seen it. And Gary Mathias' stepfather said, I can't understand why Gary would have been that scared. All those paperbacks and they didn't even build a lousy fire. I can't understand why they didn't do that unless they were afraid. 
In an open letter published in a local paper, the families of Ted, Bill, Jack, and Gary blamed law enforcement for not doing enough to find their sons. And again, I wonder how it could have been that they didn't know about the service road that led to the trailer that was maintained by the Forest Service. But that is where the case stood until 2019, when journalists at the Sacramento Bee decided to do a little digging. Gary Mathias was still considered a missing person. They pored over the case files, all the newspaper clippings and interviews, and went back to re-interviewing surviving family members and investigators who had worked on the case. What they found was a different picture of Gary Mathias than had been portrayed back in 1978. They learned that Matthias was first hospitalized for schizophrenia when he was a sophomore in high school. Indeed, it appears mental illness ran in his family. Both his biological father and his sister died by suicide. Matthias had done drugs all through his stint in the army before being arrested for going AWOL. While he was in jail for going AWOL, he called some officers over to his cell. When they opened his cell door, he was apparently naked and punched one of the sergeants in the face. Later, he told investigators he had done that in the hopes of getting kicked out of the army. His plan worked, and he was medically discharged. Later that same month, Matthias was caught sexually assaulting his cousin's 17-year-old wife while she was sleeping. Matthias accepted a plea deal for the attempted rape charge and served just eight months for the assault on the officer at the jail. A few months after getting out of jail, Matthias, high on meth and benzedrine, visited the house of a couple he knew and threatened their three-year-old daughter. The couple kicked him out and Matthias pounded on the door and screamed until police came. According to the Sacramento Bee, quote, he had other run-ins with the law, an arrest on suspicion of grand theft auto, a citation for disturbing the peace and driving without a license where he allegedly told the arresting officers, F you cops, you are all mother effers. A slew of bar fights, complaints he was prowling at a local cemetery, end quote. Matthias had also been admitted to psychiatric hospitals on a number of occasions and had managed to escape from at least three of them. In 1975, he moved to Oregon completely out of the blue, and when his parents pleaded with him to come home, he showed up at their door five weeks later, having walked the entire 540 miles back to Yuba County. Later that year, Matthias broke into a couple's home and told them he was looking for a ring to return to Saturn. He also told them they were in his house and he was there to collect rent. However, after the last run-in with the law, Matthias managed to get back on and stay on his meds and held down a steady job in his stepfather's gardening business. He was so stable, in fact, that his doctor referred to him as, quote, one of our sterling success cases, end quote. Toward the end of 1977, Matthias joined the Gateway Program, which, as far as I can tell, was a program that offered services and community to people with intellectual disabilities. And even on all the medications he was on, the Gateway Gators basketball coach recalled feeling like Matthias could possibly flip out at any time. Under Sheriff Jack Beecham told the Bee, uh, I know parents at the time told us, they told me personally, that they had deep concerns about Gary being involved in this. They were unabashed in their opinions and telling me that. And the other four were always together. They walked a lot of places together, always together, and he just was a different personality type. He didn't meld with the other four, according to the parents. 
And then, according to notes from an interview with law enforcement following the disappearance, a friend of Matthias's told investigators that Matthias had repeatedly told a friend that he had a dream in which he and several other people would disappear. And so, inevitably, some people believed that Gary Matthias was somehow responsible for the deaths of his four friends. Under Sheriff Beecham told the Bee, They were either forced or manipulated. And where does Matthias come into that? Maybe he had nothing to do with it. We'll never know. But I think he did. How or why, though, is unclear. It's possible he hadn't taken his medication because he was concerned about how the side effects would affect his ability to play the basketball game on the 25th. But it's hard to imagine he went from stable to dangerously psychotic in a matter of hours. And it doesn't explain how the car got up the mountain with no damage on it. Maybe Matthias was having some sort of relapse and thought they were in danger and somehow convinced them to flee. But flee really slowly and carefully up a dark road? Plus, where did he go? Some people believed he could have survived fine on his own, but without his medication, that's hard to believe. Surely, if he did manage to end up in a nearby town or something, someone would have recognized him from the numerous stories in the papers, or he would have ended up in another dust-up with the law. But if he was the person who tucked Ted Wire into his deathbed 8 to 13 weeks after they apparently got to the trailer, why wouldn't he, an Army veteran, have known to start a fire or check the unlocked locker for more provisions long before his friend froze to death? Why wouldn't he and Wire have changed into the warmer clothes in the trailer? None of it makes any sense. And still, over 40 years later, there are no answers. It's maddening to wonder but never know what led those men out there that night and to see all the missed opportunities they had to save themselves. It's maddening to not know if the fate of Matthias was the same as his companions or whether they suffered at his hands. It's maddening that no amount of research or evidence has led us any closer to the truth. Maddening and strange, and still, after all this time, unexplained. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, in the heart of Chicago, there is a hotel with a storied past and some guests who checked in decades ago and never checked out, the Congress Plaza Hotel. And if you want even more Strange and Unexplained, head on over to patreon.com slash strange and unexplained and join our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get three bonus episodes plus exclusive content. And for just $7 a month, you get all that plus all the episodes ad-free. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineered and mixed by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Jordan Kai Burnett, Ryan Garcia, and Luther Creek. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story for something you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, head over to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. 
If you like our show, please do help us out by giving us a five-star rating and glowing review wherever you listen to podcasts. Our critics are vocal and unafraid of submitting those one-star reviews. If you don't like the show, feel free to give a one-star and a scathing review. The name of the podcast is Breaking Battlegrounds. 